We're turning once again this evening to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. I want to begin reading in verse 1 again that we might be reminded of how bleak the situation was in Jeremiah's thinking. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1. Let's hear the Lord's word. I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath builded against me, encompassed me with gall and travail. He hath set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Also when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. He hath enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait, and as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways, and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow, and set me as a mark for the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity, and I said, My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the warm wood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance, and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And God will bless that reading for his name's sake. Please bow your head with me for a moment. Let's seek the Lord together. Our God and Father in heaven, in Christ's holy name, we approach the throne of God praying for that blessing of power that only comes from Thee. 
that enabling to preach the truth clearly, passionately, that ability to expound the Word of God in such a fashion that thy people not only understand it, but, Lord, are edified through it and challenged by it, instructed in paths of righteousness through it. So, Lord, take thy servant up in thine own glorious hands. He is that clay pot, and he is nothing and can do nothing without thee. So take him up tonight, Lord. Make him a clean vessel that will be suitable for the Master's use. In Jesus' name and for his glory we ask it. Amen. Amen. I've always felt that if there's one kind of ministry that a messenger of God, a preacher, hopes he never has to perform, it would be a Jeremiah ministry. For if you're called upon by God to proclaim a message of impending doom and awful destruction, a destruction from which there would be no escape, it'd be very hard to carry on that ministry, hard to carry that heavy burden. To be called continually to preach the wrath of God against rebellion, and know with certainty that the vast majority of your congregation would not repent of their sin, that's going to bring down God's judgment that would bring the godliest of ministers, I believe, to the brink of despair, if that's the only ministry God gave him. Had Jeremiah's own soul not been blessed and sustained by the Word of God, had he not received promises from Jehovah of future blessings, that things would be different one day, he would have no doubt been driven to utter despondency. He got close sometimes. No longer will I speak in his name, he said, you recall. But the Lord changed his mind, changed his heart, and he kept on with that ministry. He was called by God, amazingly, to a very, very difficult mission. It's not just that the inhabitants of Jerusalem both rejected him and the message that God had given him to proclaim to them, but they made life very difficult for this prophet. He's up there in the tops as far as how he was treated by the people, the things he actually had to go through to endure in delivering his ministry. He was cast into a dungeon where the only means of entering it was being let down into it by ropes. And there wasn't a door that you walked in that was deep. And that dungeon let down. And in that dungeon we read, there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. He is faced with starvation and thirst and would have died there in that dungeon had it not been for one of the king's eunuchs who befriended 
Jeremiah, an Ethiopian eunuch. But the heartache of all heartaches came when that Babylonian army that he had prophesied about for years finally did break through the walls of Jerusalem and caused this river of blood to flow through the streets. And he saw the temple of the Lord destroyed. It was an awful scene to watch. The psalmist recalls what went on that day in Psalm 139 and remembers that the Babylonian soldiers took the little children and smashed their heads against the rocks. It would be hard to watch. We saw last week the effect. All of this was having on this prophet in the first half of of chapter 3. It paints a very black picture of Jeremiah's mental, emotional, and spiritual state. His mental, emotional, and spiritual state was one of bleakness. He felt that God was deeply displeased with him. He felt that God was angry with him. He's seen affliction or suffering by the rod of his wrath in verse 1. He says that God, everything God has, all of this, he hath, he hath, he hath, he hath, that God had placed him into this darkness that was impenetrable. There was no light shining for this, this man at all. Oh, it had happened before. He had been in dark places before. But before God had come and, and shown some light, but that wasn't happening at least at this juncture. He was convinced in his heart that the Lord was his enemy. This is Jeremiah. Man of God was convinced that God was his enemy. And he was looking to pounce on him, to bring down a sledgehammer and crush him, or he uses the words of a bear or a lion lying in wait. He felt like he was locked up in a prison. And the keys had been thrown away for good. There was no way out. Perhaps most pressing of all was that he found himself in the place that Job found himself. He sought the face of God. He prayed and prayed and prayed, but he could not find God. The heavens were brass. Don't miss the point that this man prayed. In spite of the bleakness of the situation, he prayed. And in that state of mind and soul, Jeremiah claims that his hope has perished from the Lord. But as we saw last week, there comes, there comes a change, a turning point in his thinking. He, he's been saying, remembering verse 19, mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My soul hath them still in remembrance, remembering, remembering the bitterness of it all, that experience. But then he recalled something else. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. And what was it that Jeremiah remembered that 
restored, that revived his hope that was a light to him in his darkness, that actually brought him out of that prison house he felt God had put him in, that convinced him once again that God was not his enemy, that the Lord was not warring against him, but was his friend and altogether for him. What was it that he recalled to mind? That's what we've begun to look at. We only looked at one of the things last week that he recalled that was such a turning point in his life. Jeremiah remembered the Lord's mercies, verse 22. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. The fact that Jeremiah was still alive, that he still had a ministry, that there was still a remnant that had been left behind in Jerusalem, that all the Jews were not taken back, but there was still a remnant left behind. That was a clear indicator in his mind. He didn't see it before, and that's so often how it is. It's just as plain as the nose on our face. We just don't see it because of our mind, our thinking. It was clearly there the whole while. Jeremiah, you're not consumed. I haven't hauled you off into captivity. It's not your blood burning in the streets. You're still here. I still have a ministry for you. He saw that was God's mercy. Had God held, withheld his mercy from Jeremiah, he would have been consumed in that I think I pointed this out last week. The Hebrew word means utterly consumed. So God's mercies are always, I said, preserving mercies. We went on to think a little bit about the fact that God's mercies, and this is, again, what became a blessing to Jeremiah, God's mercies are plenteous. Jeremiah says that God's Mercies, plural, plenteous, abounding. And when he says that these mercies are the mercies of the Lord, the mercies of Jehovah, he was remembering, he was remembering that covenant name of the Lord. This is the God who said, I am that I am. That's the hell yon, I am that I am. But what it actually means is I will always be what I've always been. I will always be to you and for you what I've always been to you and for you. He's always been a God who shows mercy to his children. And he therefore will always be a God who shows mercy to his children. Do you see how that will turn your night into day if you believe that? He always will be what he always has been. So because God is Jehovah, his, his mercies are sure. They are promised to us by the one who always, always keeps his word. And that is why the psalmist loved repeating that truth, that the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. You can never wear out and wear down the mercy of God. But there's more that Jeremiah remembered about the Lord that brought an end to his feeling of hopelessness, despondency, and despair. He remembered in the second place the Lord's compassion. 
It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because, note that please, because His compassions fail not. The reason for this preserving and plenteous and promised mercy from God is simply because, because His compassions fail not. You drop down to verse 32. But though he calls grief, that's the Lord, causes grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. There is a wrapping together of God's mercies and God's... They're not the same thing, you know. Oh, there's a definite relationship between them, but they're not the same thing. Compassion literally reads tender mercy. That's the idea. Tender mercy. It refers primarily to that, to that deep feeling, that deep emotion in God that of, of love and of pity that's aroused in the Lord for His people when He sees they need compassion that they need tenderness. It's that same compassion which Christ speaks when he says, the bruised reed will he not break, and the smoking flax he will not quench. He will deal tenderly with his broken child. He'll deal tenderly with the child whose fire seems to be just about gone out altogether. Not harshly, because he pities. It was the English hymn writer Samuel Stennett, he put it like this, He saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. For me he bore the shameful cross and carried all my grief. He saw me plunged in deep distress. That's what he did with Jeremiah. What about this compassion that he remembered? What would you have thought about the Lord's compassion had you been in his place? You're in this dungeon of despair, and all of a sudden the light gets switched on. This God is a God of mercy, and this God, his compassions do not fail. What about the Lord's compassion would bring comfort to you? I thought about that. First thing I thought about, Jeremiah, no doubt, would have been upon his mind, this compassion from God is sovereign compassion. There were, hmm, who knows how many thousands were slain by the Babylonian army. Jeremiah wasn't. I'm reminded of Romans 9 when Paul is quoting Exodus 33. God says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's up to me. It's up to me entirely. It lies completely in the sovereign hand of God and the sovereign will of God to show this compassion 
to show this pity to whomever he, it pleases him to show it to. Jeremiah saw it. He owes us nothing but justice. To hear some people talk, you would think that God is beholden to us. He owes us compassion. He owes us pity because we're so pitiful. He shows compassion to men according to the good pleasure of his will. You see, what I know, there was nothing good in you. And there was nothing good in me that drew forth the compassion of God that he would make me one of his people, that he would save me from destruction, save me from eternal death. Because he has compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. And if it's not his will, he will not show compassion. What you mean to say that God, this loving God, will actually not show compassion to people? That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm just repeating what Scripture says. Whom he wills, he hardens. If it pleases him, that's what he does. He hardens them in their sin. He doesn't show them pity. What would there ever be found in us that would actually stir the Lord to the point where he could say, now that is something that is worthy of the death of my son. Tell me what he would have to find in you or me to say, ah, that's worthy of it. You know right well the answer to that question. I imagine I have told you the story that was told to me by Mr. Cairns 30 plus years ago in seminary. Dr. Bob Jr. had shared it with him. He's now home with the Lord. He was a unique man, Dr. Bob Jr. He had this wonderful way when he spoke in chapel. He'd take some text of Scripture and very, with his artistry, elucidate, expound and that text. But he would always wander off in some frail. But he had this unique way of just getting back to it. And you say, you think I didn't know I'd forgotten. And he hadn't forgotten at all. But as you understand, he traveled a lot. And his wife complained about him being gone so much. Well, he thought he would try to pacify his wife and help her with her loneliness, and he got her a little puppy to keep her company. And her immediate response when he came in with that little puppy is, I don't want that. He says that he came home one day from a trip and she didn't know he had come in the house. And he found his wife on the sofa with that little puppy just cuddling it and speaking to it as if it was a little child. Dr. Bob said, there's something even in a dog that draws out compassion from us. But there was nothing in us 
to draw out the compassion of Almighty God. Amen. Nothing. No goodness. No faith. No repentance. No holiness. Matter of fact, nothing but sin. Jeremiah realized that he was still alive because the Lord had shown him compassion while others were left to the will of the Babylonian army. God made a distinction between the inhabitants of Jerusalem by showing compassion to some. It wasn't because they were better. That God saw something good that just compelled him to spare them. His compassion takes no note of their good works. If anything, it looks upon the misery that has come because of their sin. Now that's a great means to a, of comfort to a child of God who is sitting where Jeremiah was sitting. God's my enemy. He's turned against me. He shut out my prayers. I've lost hope. And they feel that the Lord is their enemy, that he's warring against them because of their sins. The Lord had compassion on you when he chose you from the foundation of the world and put you in Jesus Christ at that point in what we're going to call time, when there was no time. He had compassion on you, tender mercy, when you were there in the mass of humanity, sinful, fallen, depraved, rebellious, enemies of God, enemies of righteousness. He chose you then. Then tell me, what in the world is going to make you ever think that that sovereign compassion is going to stop now if he chose you then when you were in your sin? Now is it going to stop that you're in Christ and his righteousness? can't happen. It's also not only sovereign compassion, but it is sympathizing compassion. It speaks this word of this, of this deep feeling that's aroused in the heart of God at affliction. And it stirs the Lord to alleviate their sorrow. You, 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 you see the, the difference here. There is deep misery because of sin in everyone's life. Everyone's life. Sin brings misery. But I ask you the question, has that misery that God knows about brought forth compassion in him to show them his tender mercy? You know not. You know not. The word is, the best describes this really is the word pity. And it's seen in Judges 10, 
you see this pity of the Lord. Israel, Judges 10 is the story of Israel just going back again into their idolatry. God raises up a judge, delivers them, and they're fine for a while. The judge dies, and they go back again to their idolatry, just repeat it over. It's a cycle for them. Well, Israel had done this again in Judges 10. They're going a whoring, a whoring after the idols. And they cry to God for deliverance like they had done so many times. But he tells them, you go and cry to your gods whom you've chosen over me. Let them deliver you. So he told them, don't cry to me. But then you read just a verse or two later that God's soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. He was grieved. He could no longer stand their misery. And he raised up another judge to deliver them. Isn't that just like the Lord? We've, we, unlike Jeremiah, we have brought ourselves into these places of darkness and despair and despondency because of idolatry. We've wandered away. We've neglected God. We've shunned His Word. Half serious about walking the narrow life. And it always creates a problem for us. I'm very one, for one, I'm very glad for that because it's one of those indicators that you belong to the Lord. Because if you can just go on like that and never bother you, never bring you into a, a place of despondency and discouragement and depression because you have neglected the Lord and there's, you got bigger problems. Yes. Bigger problems. Jeremiah is not here because of sins and backslidings and failures. He's done everything that God told him to do. He has been faithful all along his whole ministry. But he's devastated by the circumstances. The wonderful thing is when we find ourselves devastated by the circumstances that we have created for ourselves... The Lord comes along and he pities us. Like as a father pitieth his children. He remembers that we're of the dust of the ground. We're weak. That we are like sheep because we're prone to wander from the shepherd. He sympathizes with his people in their misery. In all their affliction he was afflicted. That's the testimony of the Holy Spirit. We have this, if I can flip now to the New Testament for a moment, we, we, we have this, this great high priest, and I'll put it in the positive, it's put in the negative in the text for emphasis, but I'll put it in the positive. We have this great high priest who actually is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's touched. There's sympathy. 
there's a chord that reverberates in his own soul when he sees the misery that's created by our infirmities. That word infirmity in the Greek denotes weakness or frailty. It's used in the New Testament sometimes to speak of physical weakness, of sickness of body, disease, as when the multitudes came to Jesus to be healed by him of their infirmities, the same word there. But it's often used in the New Testament to speak of spiritual weakness. That is, can I put it like this most bluntly, spiritual weakness, we're talking about sin. And that's the only way it's used in Hebrews, infirmities. So these infirmities that touch the heart of the great high priest and move him to have compassion on us has particular reference to our sins, our spiritual infirmities that are a big hindrance to our hope, that are a big hindrance to our faith that are a big hindrance to our joy and our peace of mind. And you know they are. Especially during times of trouble and and suffering and, and setbacks and discouragements and depressions and defeats. Infirmities galore. What a word to describe our ungrounded ungrounded and sinful fears what a word infirmities weaknesses to describe our fainting fits what a word to describe our follies and our failures you see we need, we need someone who can bring us, in spite of all of our infirmities, into the presence of God. Someone. We need someone to do that. Someone who will speak as our advocate. Someone who will defend us not because he's been hired or appointed just to do a job but because he actually pities us he actually cares for us his soul is grieved by the miseries that our sins cause us And it doesn't, it doesn't move the Lord to turn away from us, to despise us, to cast us off. Rather, it moves the Lord to draw closer to us, to be the great high priest. Because he understands Without sin, mind you, but he understands what it is to be attacked. We need one who is able to comfort us and to strengthen us in our weakness. 
and to correct us when we've gone astray. That's what Jeremiah needed at this time in his life. Not a hammer coming down on him for his wrong thinking. It's not what the Lord did to him. And his thinking was messed up. What he was saying was not true. It's how he felt. But none of it was true. He needed someone to have compassion on him. Just because of his wrong thinking. The wonderful the wonderful thing is that the Lord's compassions fail not. The idea is they can never be exhausted. They never run out, they never dry up. They are renewed, he says, every morning. New means actually renewed every morning. Why? Why every morning? Why does the Lord come to you every morning and renew his compassions, his tender mercies? Well, every morning you and I commit fresh sins. Every morning you and I commit new sins. And we need new mercies for those new sins. We need fresh pity for the fresh transgressions. I'm glad they're new every morning. I'm glad it doesn't come just once a month. They're new every month. Or they're new every year. But they're new every morning. Every morning brings with it new temptations. And I need the Lord's compassion to help me deal with those temptations. I have no strength. Any strength I have to overcome temptations, it will come from Him. And so I need, I need the Lord to pity me. Every morning brings with it new duties, new responsibilities, new obligations, and they'll change from day to day. But I need fresh mercy from the Lord to do those duties and those responsibilities. I'm not worried about two days from now. I'm not concerned about a week from now. It's, it's the now. It's the morning. I, today, Lord, I need you to renew your compassions. Each and every day will bring with it new trials and new anxieties and new needs. And the Lord says, I'll be there with my compassion. Matthew Henry said, when our comforts fail, yet God's compassions do not. When our comforts fail, the compassions never stop. 
Third and finally, he remembered the Lord's constancy. Verse 23, he says, Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Right, God is faithful. You all know that. We sang that tonight, right? We sang. Great is thy faithfulness. So what's that mean? And how does that, how does that bring you and me when we feel in despair or despondent or defeated and hopeless? How does that help us? Well, number one, I must remember that because God is faithful, that God is going to be faithful to himself. First and foremost, he is going to be true to who he is. Always. He will never deny who he is. He will never go back. He will never change. He will always be true to who he is. He'll be true to himself. And that's where all this must start. I know we want to come to us. <laughs> but no, no, no. What's so important for us is that God will always be faithful to himself. Which means that God is going to be faithful to his purposes, to his plans, to what he has set out to do in your life and in mine. They will be accomplished. I don't know what they all are. Oftentimes I've sat down and said, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing or why you're doing it. But when grace has been given me, I've said, you're going to do what you've planned to do. And what you have planned to do is the best thing and the wisest thing and the most loving thing that you could ever do for me. Because you are going to be faithful to your purposes and they're going to be carried out. It means that God is going to be faithful to his covenant his promises, they will be fulfilled. Didn't Paul say they are yea and amen in Christ Jesus? We sing standing on the promises. But whether or not we stand on the promises... It's not going to affect God being faithful that those promises be fulfilled. It's not dependent upon me. It's not dependent upon my faithfulness. That God is faithful to carry out his promises. He's going to do what he said he would do. If that's all you heard, wouldn't that be enough? If you just really believe that. What we've said so far, wouldn't that be enough to bring you out of a dungeon of hopelessness? The Lord has got to be faithful because He's eternal. And because He's eternal, He's unchangeable. His immutability is grounded in his eternality. 
He who is eternal will not and cannot change. We will change. And our circumstances are going to change day in and day out. And our feelings change big time. Sometimes we feel we're on a roller coaster with our feelings. Sometimes the day it goes and it's a wonderful sunshiny day. And we've had the help of the Lord in prayer and God has spoken to us through his word. And we see signs that God has made us useful in some little way. And we're happy as a lark. But then there's the days when the heavens are brass and we get nothing from the word and it seems that we're more of a thorn in the side of the work of God than in the side of the devil. And down we go. But no change, Jehovah knows. His feelings for us don't change. His purposes toward us don't change. He'll always be what he's always been. Great, he says. It's not just that he's faithful. That's not what Jeremiah, that's not what he recalled to mind. It's just that God is faithful. He said, great is thy faithfulness. Great. His faithfulness is great in the sense that it's always been great. There's never been one iota of an exception to this. It's, it's never been a little bit great. It's always been wonderfully great. His faithfulness is great in that not one of his promises will go unfulfilled. His faithfulness is great and that it is never affected by our unfaithfulness. It's beyond understanding. We so often fall into that trap of the devil where we conceive of God as we look at ourselves and think that he is like us. And he is not like us. Amen. We're fickle. He's faithful. He's immutable. We're constantly changing. He's omnipotent, and we're absolute weakness. His purposes never fail. Ours fail all the time. Our plans. Not God. And so my Scottish Presbyterian minister, songwriter, Horatius Bonner wrote, The clouds may come, go and come, 
and storms may sweep my sky. This blood-sealed friendship changes not. The cross is ever nigh. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. My love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. Jeremiah was facing unbelievable change in Jerusalem. He had never seen anything like it. He found hope again by remembering that God is constant. His faithfulness is great. So, you might just be in the bright sunshine right now in your walk with God and say, oh, that's a nice message. I promise you, you're just a little around the bend and there'll be a dark time. And you'll need to remember this. It's going to be dark. Your feelings are going to crash. Here's the way to find hope in the midst of hopelessness. May the Lord write His Word on our hearts for His name's sake as we bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, in the Savior's name we come. We come thanking Thee for the help Thou hast given to us in answer to prayer in Thy Word tonight. The help given to Thy people. Lord, we, we can take these things on board when we feel good. Oh Lord, when we don't feel so good in the heart and the head. Sometimes it comes and rolls off of us like water off a duck's back. We pray for the grace of faith to believe what we know to be true in the light, also in the darkness. Give us that grace, Lord, that grace we're going to need tomorrow. Tomorrow to trust in the Lord and to wait patiently for thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Mm -hmm.